This talk was given at the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts on September 23, 1983. The speaker is Joseph Goldstein. Tonight I'd like to speak about compassion and compassionate action. In order to understand compassion, it's necessary that we understand the nature of suffering. Because compassion is the response, it's the intuitive response, it's the spontaneous response to the experience of suffering. When our heart is open and we experience hurt or pain in ourselves or in other people, then the compassion is not so much a feeling of sentiment sentiment, or a feeling of pity, but rather it's the natural response of that energy coming in, the energy of pain or the energy of hurt, and in that space of the open heart it's transformed into compassion. And in that transformation comes different kinds of action. So if compassion has its, as its condition suffering, it arises because of suffering, it arises out of suffering, out of pain, where do we find the suffering in the world? Where do we find this pain? We don't have to look very far. Really, I was just, as I was sitting this hour and reflecting upon compassion and suffering, I was realizing what an island of peace we live in, in the world. It's an island, really, of harmony, of abundance. But we don't have to look very far to see the enormous amounts of pain that exists on so many different levels, you know, on the level of economics, the level of poverty in the world is, is incredible. You know, social injustice, political injustice, religious intolerance, I think it's important that somehow we become connected with that reality because it's so overwhelming for so many people. Yet even in our island, on our island, of relative peace and relative harmony and relative abundance, still when we look more closely, we can see suffering here too can see the suffering of the body. Given a body, given the fact that we have a body, inherent in that, inextricable from it, is the fact of pain. At different times it hurts, it's going to get old, it's going to get sick, it's going to get diseased, and it's going to die. I think it's very instructive if, on occasion, we become intimate with the dukkha or the suffering of old age. Just to hang out, you know, with people who are really old, very old, and the bodies begin to break down. We see what's in the nature of the body. It's not so much what happens to one individual rather than another but rather inherent in this process of having a body is the process of aging and decay. And it can get really messy and uncomfortable. It's another kind of pain and suffering that exists, not particularly out there, but more part of our own lives. There's the suffering of the mind. 
And even if we haven't yet reached old age ourselves, even a little bit of awareness of the nature of the mind reveals so many different kinds of suffering and hurt and pain from general discontent or unsatisfactoriness. It's just some sense of things not being as full or complete or as whole as they could be to real mind attacks, you know, multiple hindrance attacks of strong desire and anger and fear and paranoia and boredom and restlessness and you know you know the list very well. And if you're still not convinced that there's a certain amount of suffering or pain bound up in living, you might pay very careful and close attention during the course of a day in an investigative way, in an exploratory way, why we do anything, anything at all. Why do we move? Because we're in one position long enough and it hurts. So we move to avoid the discomfort. Why do we eat? Because if we don't eat for a long enough period of time, it begins to hurt. So we eat in order to avoid the discomfort, to allay that dis-ease of hunger. Why do we sleep? That's a good question. Really, why, when you go to sleep, why do we go to sleep? It's just too much, you know. (laughs) Time to just shut it off for a while. No matter how good it is, no matter how much fun, you know, we're having, there comes a certain time when it's just enough. You know, and so go unconscious for a while. You look at anything we do and you see that behind it, it's an effort to somehow get more comfortable, become happier, avoid some pain, avoid some discomfort. We see that on so many levels, whether we take kind of what's happening in the world, the worldly condition, the nature of the body, the nature of the mind, what moves us through the day, there's so much suffering to experience. If then compassion comes out of suffering, we might wonder why there's not more compassion in the world. There seems to be plenty of suffering. Why is it that there's not very much compassion? Because, and I think that we can see it very clearly in our own experience, that the conditioning of our hearts, the conditioning of our mind, is to be closed to the suffering, is to turn away from it, not to experience it, not to feel it. So as we close off to the suffering, we also close off to that wellspring of compassion, Compassion as the natural response. It's not that we have to be particularly saintly to feel compassion. It's the natural response of an open heart to the experience of suffering. The reason that that wellspring is capped is because for the most part we don't allow ourselves to go into the pain. We don't allow ourselves to feel it. And so we close off that response of compassion. Very much what the practice is about is first learning to see the conditioning, to see the the pain, to see the suffering, and to see our turning away from it, to see all the ways we do it. And then to begin to turn that around, 
so that instead of facing away from it, we learn how to enter into it, to feel it. It sounds so simple, it sounds easy. You know, instead of turning away from it, go into it. But, as we all know, it's not so easy to do. It's not easy to do because the mind has developed so many kinds of resistance. The mind, very subtle and very varied are the ways the mind resists different kinds of pain. Just as a few examples, when we deal with physical pain, you're sitting and the body hurts. How is it that the, that the mind turns away from it rather than goes into it? One way is just ignoring it, pretending it's not there. And that works for a while until it starts screaming loudly enough. And then we can't quite ignore it. So the next tactic of the mind is to give sidelong glances at it, you know, sort of watching the breath. And it's out of the corner of the eye, the mind's eye, where you kind of feel the pain a little bit. That's not acceptance. That's not going in. That's still resisting. Aversion is resistance. Just that basic dislike, I want it to go away. That's not opening to it. There's no possibility of compassion when there's aversion. And I'm starting with this example of physical pain because it's so tangible. And the physical sensation is so tangible and we can see so clearly the conditioned responses or patterns of the mind. Keep in mind that when there's aversion, there can't be compassion. And if we can't do it with the pain in the knee, how can we do it with more intense suffering that exists in ourselves and other people? There's another way, a more subtle way, that the mind resists. And it's more subtle because it's in the guise of opening. And that is the project mentality. You know, we have some kind of pain or block or tension and we become aware of it in order to open it, in order for it to go away. If there's any in order to in the mind, if there's any anticipation, that also is a kind of resistance. It's like we're pushing at it instead of opening to it. And the pushing is a kind of resistance. So when you're sitting or walking or being with your experience, pay attention, really investigate whether you are simply there with what's happening or you're there in order for something else to happen. Now we're with the pain in order for it to go away so I can meditate and get enlightened. That's not awareness. That's not openness. And with that kind of project mentality, again, there's no possibility of compassion because we're not relating directly to the pain. We're not feeling it. We're pushing at it. These are some other kinds of resistance to pain. Resisting different feelings and emotions. You know, we have a wide range of emotions, mental states, some of which are pleasant, some are unpleasant. And for almost all of us, there's a category or a set of emotions or feelings that we don't like, we don't accept, we're cut off from. And in many people, it creates a huge conflict, a very fundamental split in one's life. Here's a few examples. 
the feeling of fear, the feeling of unworthiness. How many of you can feel unworthiness with a smile? Can really be unworthy happily? It's not so easy. You know, or feel incompetent, or feel lonely. These are feelings that come. They're part of life's experience. What do we do? We do the same thing that we do with the physical pain. Feeling of loneliness comes. We don't like it. We don't accept it. We don't want it. And so we condemn it. We have aversion. We push at it. We try to push it away. Of course, the more we resist, the stronger it gets. Feeling of fear comes, or feeling of unworthiness comes. What do we do? We don't like it. We don't accept it. We don't allow ourselves to feel it and allow compassion to come out of that feeling. Instead, we try to get rid of it. We dislike it. Can you imagine going through life with this split in the foundation of our mind, the foundation of experience, the whole range of things which one part of the mind is just pushing against, is having aversion towards. Opening to these feelings, allowing ourselves to feel them, allowing ourselves to feel the hurt, to feel the pain, to feel the suffering. It's true that these feelings are not pleasant, but that's okay. We don't have to be afraid of unpleasant feelings. Because as we open to them and as we feel them, it's like the split or the crack in the foundation of our being becomes healed. We're not pushing part of ourselves aside, away. And again, as we go into the hurt or the pain of those feelings, as we really go into them, then again, automatically, compassion will be the response. We resist pain, we resist feelings, we resist situations. There are certain situations which we don't, just don't like. They're uncomfortable or makes us uneasy. There's one story which I've shared with some of you, but it so, so perfectly illustrates this particular kind of resistance. At one time when I was doing my practice in Bodh Gaya, I was sitting in this hut, and it was just a little six, six foot by seven hut with a, with a piece of canvas for a door. And this cat kept wandering into my hut. And at that time, and it's diminished to a great extent, at that time though, I just didn't like cats. You know? And so the cat would come in to my hut and I'd throw it out. And it would come back and I'd throw it out. And it would come back and I'd throw it out. And each time I was getting more and more upset at this cat for interrupting my practice. And I was getting more and more tight and tense. And of course, every time I threw the cat out, it kept coming back. I was amazed that it had so much perseverance. This went on, I don't remember exactly, but it was a long time. It was days, this cat bugging me. Finally, I, <laughs> the only thing I could do after a period of time within the realm of the precepts <laughs> was to surrender, because throwing it out obviously was not working. It just kept coming back. And so one time the cat came in and I just didn't do anything. I let it crawl over me and on my bed and kind of lay down for a little while. And I just got okay with it. And after about five minutes, the cat got up and walked out. And it was such a good lesson. And it's so applicable in so many situations of how when we resist, we feed what we're resisting. 
And when we don't resist, it's like the flow of energy, just the flow of harmony, is allowed to manifest. So again, pay attention in situations that when we push against, to see the dynamic that we're setting up, that pushing against something is feeding it. There's resistance to pain, there's resistance to different kinds of feelings, emotions, resistance to situations, resistance to people. How many times have we been with somebody whose energy we just have a hard time being with? You know, they drive us nuts. And even with the best of intentions, you know, we're practicing metta and loving-kindness and compassion, but when we're with these people, their energy, for some reason, touches a button in us, and we feel that kind of contraction or withdrawal, or sometimes the pushing away. Are you familiar? Does that, does that ring a bell at all? It's a very interesting situation to really pay attention to. And it has to do, again, with allowing ourselves to get there for the experience, instead of reacting to the painfulness of it to the uncomfortableness, and contracting behind it, and resisting that energy coming in. If we can get there for it, if we can simply be there, another whole process can happen. And that is, we can allow ourselves to drop below the personality behavior level. Because that's usually what what pushes our buttons. Somebody's behaving in a certain way, or their personality is a certain way, and we can't accept it, we can't receive it. And so we tighten or close off. If we can stay there and just allow that energy to come, what happens is a dropping to a different level underneath the personality, underneath the behavior. There was one person quite a few years ago came to retreats And every time we had an interview, she just drove me crazy. I found it so hard to to be with her energy. And I tried, and I sat there and really was practicing patience. But inside, inside was that feeling of just tightening, you know, and the 10-minute interviews felt like an hour and a half because there was so much holding. Until one time, one day she came in, and I just really, I looked at her carefully. I just really got there for her. And what happened was, there was a getting underneath the manifestation to the suffering out of which that manifestation was happening. In other words, why are people difficult? Why are they abrasive? Why certain personalities obnoxious? And it's true, there would be false to say that there are no difficult personalities in the world, our own included. (laughs) Because in times of suffering, of real intense suffering, suffering, it often manifests that way. Mostly we react to the behavior, and so we get caught in that dynamic of resistance. If it's possible to drop down and really see the place that it's coming from, then we see the suffering, we open to the suffering, and in that opening there's an immediate, natural response of compassion. And so every time of difficulty with people, It's a wonderful time to practice, to really see the different levels and what levels we're resisting on, what what level we're closing off on, to see if it's possible to get underneath that.
this suffering, the suffering in ourselves, the suffering in other people, in the world. The response to suffering, the natural response is compassion. What blocks the compassion, what blocks that response, is our resistance to feeling the pain. As long as we resist, we close our hearts, we contract, we push against it. There's one line from the third patriarch. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. How is the great way for you? Is it difficult or easy? Preferences doesn't mean, not having preferences doesn't mean that we don't make choices. Preferences mean, can we be with pain and pleasure both? Can we really open? When, when you're sitting, can you go from rapture and bliss to the experience of a pain in the knee without a preference? That's a challenge for you. And you'll see it takes a lot of practice because the mind, the mind reaches out for the pleasant and reaches out for the pleasurable. And then we're not open anymore. Then we're not simply there. We're closing off. What are the root causes of the suffering that exists? The root cause of suffering in ourselves and other people? The root causes, where it comes from, is ignorance and craving. Ignorance. That's a good word. The cause of suffering is ignorance of suffering, ignoring suffering. Because we don't open to it, because we resist, whether it's pain or feelings or situations or people, because we resist feeling the suffering or the pain, we actually are creating the causes for it. How is that? Because we haven't seen or understood the suffering that's inherent in this process. The, and suffering, you know, in some way there's a, there's a problem with that in our language because In English, it doesn't really cover the whole range. In other words, when we say suffering in English, it's, we normally associate it with real heavy, you know, intense suffering. And that's certainly one part of the spectrum, but the word dukkha in Pali, it means much more than that. It's not just the, the heavy, intense, painful situations, but it also includes the sense of, just the sense of incompleteness, the sense of things not being totally satisfactory. So it can also be very light, it can be very, um, almost ephemeral is the other, is the other end of the spectrum suffering of dukkha. It's because we don't see it, because we don't open to it, because we resist it, mostly we think that happiness is someplace out there to experience. We keep craving pleasant feeling. Because we haven't seen the suffering inherent in this process, we keep craving craving pleasant sights and sounds and smells and sensations and thoughts and pleasant emotions and pleasant situations and pleasant people. Craving, that craving, that reaching out. Craving is hunger. Craving is hunger for pleasant feeling. 
This ignorance of suffering is the cause of craving because we don't see that it's not going to be satisfied out there. So because of the ignoring of it, the mind craves. The mind craves, it reaches out for these pleasant feelings and the craving just creates more suffering. It's this, it's this circle, this circuit that we get onto. How does craving cause suffering? It causes suffering in a very obvious way and something we should have learned by now, although we haven't very well, and that is that it's never satisfied. How many times in our lives have we gotten what we craved? Countless times. You know, we crave good food and we crave nice sensations and we crave nice people and we crave pleasant surroundings and we've gotten it all. Many, many, many times. And yet what happens? It's there for some time and then it disappears as do all pleasant feelings. No, you have to have tea and then breakfast and then lunch again. And it's just, it's this continual trying to satisfy and gratify. And we don't come to the end. So it's like looking for happiness, looking for fulfillment in an area that's not going to provide it. And that itself is a cause of tremendous frustration in people's lives. Imagine spending a whole life seeking happiness doing all the things that society tells us are going to bring happiness, and working hard for it, you know, nine to five, slaving away to get all the things that are supposed to make us happy, and then not being happy. That's terribly frustrating, which is why many people are frustrated. And that frustration is is dukkha. This craving, which comes out of ignorance, the ignorance of not understanding the dukkha or suffering in in life. So we crave for pleasant experience as, as a way of trying to be happy. The craving just causing more suffering, both because it can never be satisfied, and also the very energy of craving. Pay attention when the mind is wanting burning. It's a very unpleasant feeling, that, that feeling of wanting something. It's like the, the energy of it is this, you know, just kind of reaching out for something. Can you imagine trying to hold this posture? <laughs> Not very comfortable. It's that toppling forward, reaching out, and in doing this, it's like we're closing in on the object of desire whether it's a person or a situation or a sensation or a thought. And in that closing in, it's just the opposite of being open to life, of being open to experience. We close ourselves to everything but that object. When you pay attention to how it feels when we're wanting, when we're craving, you will see that it's not a comfortable feeling. The craving itself is dukkha. Not only because it's never satisfied, but because of the quality of the energy itself. When we're craving, or desiring, or wanting, it's like we are suffusing our minds with a mentality of poverty. That sense or that attitude of the present moment not being enough, that we're poor and that we have to get something in order to be rich. To turn that around and to see how it's the craving which is simply hungering for pleasant feeling which causes suffering, And to begin to let go of that turns that mentality of poverty into a mentality of abundance, of fulfillment, of seeing that every moment is complete, every moment is full. There's another level at which craving, born out of ignorance, 
causes suffering. And that is, when there's that strong desire in the mind and craving and grasping, we act. That action brings result. And so we stay on this wheel of samsara, this wheel of life and death. We reach out for something, depending on how we reach out, whether it's with a relatively wholesome mind or relatively unwholesome, it brings different kinds of results, different kinds of karmic results. We experience the results and then react to the results and reach out again, and so we're just bound on this wheel. There's no, there's no exit from that cycle of craving. And that's, that's really the deepest and most profound kind of suffering. The endlessness. The endlessness of action and reaction, action and result. It's possible for wisdom to replace ignorance. Ignorance is the cause of suffering. And it's the ignorance of avoiding suffering. It's so amazing. Wisdom is the opening to the suffering which becomes the cause of the end of suffering. When we can open to it, when we can open to the pain in the body, when we can open to the whole range of feelings, even the ones that are very unpleasant, when we can open to the painfulness of different situations or the difficulties with different people, when we open to that, then wisdom transforms the ignorance. We're no longer ignoring it. We're opening to it. In that wisdom, there's no craving. In that wisdom, in that openness, we allow this natural response of compassion to the pain to be there. like our craving and desire has taken us out of harmony, the very natural harmony and responsiveness of our heart to reality, because we resist, because we haven't learned yet completely to open to the truth of what's happening. What's the manifestation then of compassionate action? When we begin to see this process and to go from the resistance of pain and suffering to an opening to it, a going into it, a feeling of it, and then allowing that to be transformed into compassionate action, how does it manifest? A very beautiful way that it manifests is in its universal quality. When we open to the suffering that exists in ourselves and in other people and see the universality of suffering, then we can also open to the universality of compassion. And we don't limit it to the few people we know or our friends or our family because we see the commonality of it, the commonality of pain. And in the seeing of that comes a universal response. What's interesting to me is to observe how very often, with good intention, people can narrowly restrict or define arenas of compassion to the most obvious situations. But yet in doing that are cutting off another whole part of humanity or other beings. And it's from not understanding the law of karma. In other words, it's easy to be compassionate to people who are obviously really suffering. You know, where there's a lot of poverty or starvation or disease or social injustice. It's reasonably easy for our hearts to begin to open to that and to respond. 
can we be as compassionate to the people or the beings who are perpetrating those injustices? That's not so easy. The tendency is, many, many of us, to judge or condemn or dislike. And that's because we don't understand or appreciate fully the law of karma. And that is when people are doing something that's unskillful or unwholesome, it's planting the seeds of suffering. Planting the seeds of their own suffering. Not only are those states of greed and hatred in themselves suffering in the moment, but when they're doing something that's hurting other people, it's like walking into fire. What's the response? What's our response to people who we see are walking into fire? And we see that that's what's happening. Again, even for people who are perpetrating injustice or perpetrating pain or harm, we can also begin to feel compassion for their ignorance. Some time ago when I was sitting, I just had this image or the, or the thought of bodhisattvic action. In addition to responding to the obvious arenas of suffering in ourselves and in the world, I had the thought that actually helping a greedy rich person to awaken, to open up, some bodhisattva came and just spent their time, you know, working with greedy rich people. It would save themselves the trouble of ministering to that same person in their future misery. Because that's what's down the line. So why wait? You know. Suffering is universal. And it's happening on all levels. And it's happening karmically. And so people who are doing unskillful or unwholesome things are just creating more suffering for themselves. And so we can begin to relate to compassion to them, to them also. I'd like to read the poem that was, it was up on the wall for a while. Uh, it's by a Vietnamese monk, Thich Nhat Hanh, who has worked a lot for peace during the Vietnam War, and is very concerned with awareness and meditation as a vehicle for social action, for caring and compassion. And it very much has to do with the universality of it. The name of the poem is, Please Call Me By My True Names. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow, because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river. And I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl 
refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills all four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. It's a wonderful sense in that of openness and compassion for it all. Working with difficult situations, but also to know your own capacity. Because otherwise, the only thing that will happen is that you'll either get burnt out or you'll get reactive, and it, it won't be constructive at all. I think it's really important to relate in an integrated way this response, this natural response of compassion in our lives and in our practice. If You can't be compassionate with all the different parts of your experience. How can you then be compassionate with situations outside of ourselves? You know, so what you're doing here, I mean, it may feel and you know that you're just sitting here divorced from you know the the outside world and not having a chance to develop compassion, compassionate action, and that is totally inaccurate. The practice is the practice of compassion. It's the practice of opening to the entire range, to what's pleasant, to what's unpleasant, to the painful feelings, to the painful emotions, to the fact that, you know, the bananas are now to tea time, to whatever. Really look at your mind, look at how you're relating to pain, to suffering, to hurt, to discomfort, because that's where compassion is to be found. That's exactly the place that it develops. And in this sense, awareness and compassion are inextricably linked. If you work with that in your practice, you'll find that it provides a, uh, a wholeness to it. You know, it, it becomes... Well, Trungpa Rinpoche defined, he, he expressed compassion in a very nice phrase. He called it basic warmth. And that's the feeling. That's the feeling both with situations outside of ourselves and with ourselves. So as you're sitting and as you're walking and as you're going through the day, is there that basic warmth, that basic openness to every aspect of experience? And pay attention to those places or those experiences or those times when you're closing off. Because in, in those moments of resistance, there's no longer compassion there. There's no longer that warmth. So there's many opportunities in the day to really understand and, and explore the nature of compassion, the nature of openness. Does that seem clear to you? It's so important, and, and yet very often in, in the talk of you know, mindfulness and investigation, we leave out this very important component. And it's, it's so much bound up with and part of what awareness is. 
the, uh, the practice of method is um, taught in this tradition, but not emphasized very much. I, I wonder, I'm just wondering why it isn't used more as a tool for developing basic awareness. Um, the reason it's not, although it's it's definitely part of <coughs> part of the tradition, and, and the Buddha talked a lot about the development of it. This is, it's interesting. Mindfulness develops compassion and love on a deeper level than metta. Because when we're doing the loving-kindness meditation, we're doing it, we're... um, It operates on the level of beings, sending love to different beings. And that's ultimately a concept. So it's working on the conceptual level. It's working, may all beings be happy, may all beings be free of suffering. And it's a wonderful, I mean, it's a wonderful energy to put out. It's still relative. It's not, it's not ultimate reality because it deals with the concept of, of person. The love that develops through mindfulness is not It's the love out of which that expression of metta towards beings comes from, which is that quality or that level of openness and acceptance and love and compassion to each moment's experience. So it's more a quality of being than an expression of love to other beings. Do you follow? It, it's coming at it from a, from a much deeper place, a more fundamental place. Yeah. That, yeah that's a good way of expressing it. It's like the process the process is becoming compassionate or becoming loving because it's in the attitude towards each moment, each moment's experience. And from that then, both as a natural expression of it when we're relating interpersonally on that level, and also it becomes the foundation for developing the metta on a relative level very deeply. Was that, did, did, do you understand that? Because it's it's an important distinction. I find it works the other way as well. Like if you're yeah. doing metta, right. it drops from right. that space of right. tending to be. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it definitely works that way too. Ramdas was right. This is a very addictive space. Maybe you should do a course with Melinda and learn to multiply. <laughs> 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 
Which one? <laughs> Actually, just for when I was beginning my practice, I did about a year of Vipassana practice, and then I did a few months of metta, of love and kindness. And it was wonderful. I mean, it was just really, it's a wonderful practice to do. I was, I was doing it with Manindraji, and it's a way actually of developing jhana, which is levels of samadhi and absorption, out of which all the different psychic powers come. So I'd be doing it, and every day I'd go for an interview with Manindra, and he'd ask me, well, have you reached jhana yet? You know, and it was a long way away. But it started my mind thinking, you know, oh, you know, any day now, John. And then my mind started thinking of all these psychic powers, you know, talk about multiplying and all the things I was going to do with all these powers, and, you know, fly through windows. It wasn't very helpful for my practice. You know, the, I know that, that you know this, so you wouldn't be here, but it's just to kind of share my enthusiasm for... the understanding that the mind and when I say mind, what I mean is the heart mind, right? the whole the whole range of consciousness that it is It's so workable, it's so dynamic, it's not static at all. And that what we're all doing is undergoing this incredible process of transformation of mind. It's not like the mind is a block of steel. It's much more like, um, you know, potter's clay. And just you start working and working until it becomes totally malleable and you can shape it in any way you like and you can make all these beautiful things. The mind has that quality of malleability. It takes some working of it to get it to that place of malleability, right, which is what the practice is about. But as you continue and as you work, it's this totally dynamic process and and as we practice, and as the mind gets more steady and more soft, then out of that comes this incredible possibilities of ways of being. And so it's, I know that as you go from sitting to sitting and day to day, often it's easy to lose sight of kind of the bigger picture of what's happening. But what is happening is this kind of slow and steady transformation of the quality of mind. Uh, and it's tremendously exciting, especially as you begin to get glimpses of what's possible. Buddha said that the mind can be our greatest enemy and our best friend. And it's our greatest enemy when we don't understand how it's working. So we keep doing things that just cause more suffering. And it's our best friend when we begin to understand how it's working, and then it opens up enormously creative possibilities you know, in terms of opening our heart and compassion and love and insight and wisdom. It's, it's really possible to, to work this transformation, and it's what we're all doing. You know, it, takes, it takes patience, and it takes perseverance, and it just keeps... takes keeping just plugging away. You know, you put in your time, you sit and you walk, and you sit and you walk. And it's a lifetime work, and maybe many lifetimes work. It's not to think of it you know, in terms of the few months you're here this year. But once you understand that, that potential, it gives a tremendous um, inspiration and enthusiasm in the practice. So, thank you. I think that um, I'd like to meet once more with you.
Uh, actually, tomorrow, for, um, meeting with yogis, the staff is excused. Uh, maybe in the library tomorrow at about 11. And I think Sharon will be there, kind of transfer of the guard. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.